Um, and the question of close communion, that's probably where we are, so let's talk about that. The very first question you encounter, is it close or is it closed? And I, I have talked to some people who get really upset about this and really, it's close, not closed. And they get all bent out of shape about it. Um, bottom line is, that doesn't really matter. I mean, in the, in the early church, they probably called it closed communion or, you know, because that was just the way it was. We, we tried to, um, call it close communion because, oh, that's not quite so offensive. But bottom line is it's going to be offensive however you call it, so don't get worried about it. It's not that big of a deal. The name of it really doesn't matter. What we're describing when we talk about close or closed, and I guess I prefer closed just because it's nastier sounding. Closed communion. What we're talking about here is the fact that the altar is for those who believe like is taught at that altar, for people of like faith. And so for it is for the Community of believers. This is the celebration of the unity that they share. And the unity is some, is more than just, yeah, we all believe in Jesus. Unity is in the unity of teaching, the unity of doctrine. And so we go back to our corpus doctrina idea, and we have the body of doctrine. It's the whole thing. And you can't just, you know, say, oh, we all believe in Jesus. We all have the same heart. That's nice. Well, what about everything else? And so what we're saying is, what Scripture teaches is, this communion, the Lord's Supper, is a celebration of the community of believers. And so those who are communing are in communion with each other. It's not just a one-on-one me and Jesus meal. Even though, in our American psyche, we tend to think that way. We're the rugged individualist. It's just me and Jesus. Who cares about anybody else? I can get the sacrament. It's just me and Jesus. Well, that's not true. Because when you take Holy Communion, you're up there kneeling, and there's a whole bunch of people all around you. And everybody there at that rail, sharing that rail with you, and everybody who's sharing that cup with you, and sharing that bread with you, they are all together with you in this celebration. And you should be celebrating the unity that you have. And so if you don't have unity with somebody, you don't act like you do. It's just that simple. That's what close communion means. And that's why we teach it. Now, in the, within the community, it becomes a great celebration of the unity that's there. If you're not part of the community, well, yeah, it makes you feel kind of excluded. And Kolb says this really well. Lines of inclusion that surround a community are also, just by, by default, lines of exclusion. If the line of my doctrine includes all of us who all agree, well, the people who don't agree are now on the outside of that line. You can't help it. So if you're going to have something you confess, and if you confess that and it matters, that is by just immediately a line of demarcation. We all confess this. Someone who doesn't, well, they don't. That means they're not part of. It's just that simple. It's not that complicated. It's not that hard. The problem, of course, is that the people who are out here feel like, ooh, they're judging me. And, oh, they're saying they're better than I am. Or something's wrong with me. And that's not what we're saying. So, close communion actually has several aspects. Why do we do it? Well, the first one that everybody knows about, and it goes back to the the Mandacatio Indignorum, is the fact that we want to do it for the protection of unbelievers. 
the protection of unbelievers. Because if I don't recognize the body and blood of Christ and I go up there and take the sacrament, is that good for me or bad for me? Bad for me. 1 Corinthians 11. So, that's the first reason. Simply because we care. And that will go so far. People will say, oh, that's nice. Okay, I like that. We're not going to hurt anybody. But now, I've got... Uncle Jim and Aunt Mabel, who are visiting here from out of town, and they're Methodists. Can they come to communion with me, Pastor? Well, no, we have close communion. Yeah, but they're believers. I don't have to worry about them getting hurt. They won't get hurt. They know it's the body and blood of Christ. And yeah, they're members of the Methodist Church, but you know, they really believe like we do. They know it's really the body and blood of Christ, because anybody who reads the Bible knows that. And they really believe like we do. They just go to that church because they like the music and stuff. But they're really like us. So they can commune, right, Pastor? Well, see, there's, we're not done. There's more to it. It's not just for the protection of unbelievers. It's also because of this idea of the celebration of unity. It didn't matter what was the elements of the sacrament. Yeah. He said he'd given his youth group Oreos and Coke. <coughs> yeah. He says that he hopes to do uh, beer and pizza someday. Well, yeah, there's a name for guys like that. Yeah. Mm, it's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> Discretion forbids me from sharing it. All right. So the celebration of unity. We are celebrating a unity that we have. It's not just like, hey, you know, anybody can come up here because we're, this is a unity that goes deeper than just, oh, I believe in Jesus. This is a celebration of the unity that we have in doctrine. That's a part of this too. So, what we would say is that Uncle, uh, Aunt Mabel, and whoever I had, Uncle, whatever was he, it's great to have you here, and I'm glad that you're a faithful member of your congregation, and I'm glad that you're following Christ, that's great, keep doing that, and when you're home at your congregation, please by all means go take communion, but when you're here, you have a different faith than we do, a different confession than we do, and it really isn't appropriate for you to commune here because when I come to your church, I won't commune at yours either. Oh, but we want you to. That doesn't matter. I wouldn't because we're just disagreeing. This teaching is not a new one. Close communion has been the teaching of the church from the very beginning. That was always what was taught. In the early church, you know what the practice was? We know this from the, the, from the Didache, which is a second century document. We know from there, from that document, that in the early church, when it came time to celebrate communion, they would all get together and they would have their church service. When it came time to celebrate the sacrament, they would have the exchange of peace, the kiss of peace. But before that, they would dismiss from the building anybody who had not yet been baptized. All the catechumens were dismissed. I might even be somebody who was studying the catechism, learning to become, you know, waiting to be baptized and studying and preparing. And when it came time for the sacrament, I was dismissed. I couldn't be there. Now, you talk about close communion. That's close communion. It'd be like us standing up in church saying, okay, everybody who's not a member of this congregation is now asked to please leave. And they all leave, and now we celebrate communion. That's what they did. And this has been the practice of the church all through the ages. If you go over to the Cathedral Basilica over in the Central West End today, and if you're new to St. Louis, you don't know about it yet, sometime go over there and check it out. It's worth a 45-minute wandering around. It's got the largest collection of mosaics in the world. It's right here, just down the road a bit. It's worth checking out. It's one of those, take your parents here when they come to visit on, you know, one of those tourist spots. It's worth checking out on your way to the brewery. Um, <coughs> and so, so you, um, 
check out the Central West End. And when you walk into that cathedral, there'll be a little card that will say there, we welcome you to our cathedral. If you're here for Mass, that's great. But um, don't take communion. It's just for Catholics. They practice close communion, and they always have. So, close communion is not meant to be exclusionary. It's just a recognition of the fact that there's a difference. And we're just acknowledging that. Now, the problem is, people find this patently offensive. Something's wrong with me. We have to be careful to tell people, nothing's wrong with you. You just have a different profession. That's all. And I'm not judging your faith. I'm not saying you're going to hell. I'm not saying you're a bad Christian. I'm just saying you're different. Let's just call it like it is and quit playing silly games here. So that's why the practice of close communion. It's not a popular one because it seems to be judging people. But it is the practice of the church. And to be able to stand up in front of the church and say, it's up to you, where you stand with Jesus, you decide, is missing the point of the sacrament. This is the congregation sacrament. The sacrament is celebrating together. This is not just a me and Jesus thing. It is the whole community thing. And the community is celebrating the unity and the, uh, the confession that is there that they all share. And if you don't share it, you really don't belong at that altar. It's just that easy. No. Are you defining community then as just the congregation? Are you, com- like, are you defining community as like the Lutheran Church? I would say the community starts with the congregation. And that's where I would do it. Now, you can draw it a little wider, but I think ultimately it is that congregation, which is why I think it is good practice, even if you are an LCMS individual and you're in another LCMS congregation, if that's not your home congregation, it's good practice to go and talk to the pastor. That's That's right. That's right. Just to make sure. That's right. Because you're letting him know that you're there. He knows who you are. Now, when he gives you the host, he knows what you're doing. He knows where you are. That's just appropriate because that community is celebrating it. You're part. You now you're asking to be part of that community. Essentially, is what you're asking, which is a good thing to ask. That's, That's appropriate. My church put a disclaimer in the bulletin, but what are churches that don't do that? How do they deal with it? Well, there are. Like I said, this the practice on this is all over the map right now. And, you know, I can stand up here today and say, boom, this is it, and spout it out, and we're all done. The fact is, there are pastors all over the place on this thing, and there are a lot of congregations that are just scared to death to try to practice close communion, don't want to do it. It's unloving, it's not nice, it's judgmental, and who are we to decide at all the rigmarole you hear all the time? And so they don't do it. And there are some who openly practice open communion, which is, you all come up here. If you believe in Jesus, come on up. But see, what that does is it really denigrates the sacrament, And it also diminishes the fact that we are unique here. And it really, what it does is it makes doctrine look like it's not important. And do the people in the congregation get that message? Yes. I've seen it in action. If the congregation that practices open communion begins to have a very dim view of doctrine, it really doesn't matter. We all believe in Jesus. What a difference does it make? And that's detrimental. Big time. If you don't believe that yet, you will as you see things go. I mean, you start letting doctrine go, you're losing everything. It's back to that body. What kind of body do you want to be? Healthy? Piecemeal? What do you want? And to just say we all believe in Jesus just does not cut it. Jeremy? Well, essentially, Jesus did close communion. It was his group of community. Yes. Yeah. He didn't invite everybody else that was following That's him. true. That's true. Yeah. It was for that fellowship, that community. That's right. I agree. John? Um... There are special problems, though. I come from Florida. Oh, yeah. Um, Let's say no more. My hometown, 150,000 to 200,000 residents, peak a season over a million. Uh-huh. Only eight and ten people in church on a Sunday in January or February are from somewhere else. Yeah. 
we make it very clear that we're an LCMS congregation. Mm -hmm. um, I've noticed some of the Wisconsin Synod people that come won't take communion. That's because right. Because they've been told not to anywhere that isn't Wisconsin. That's right. But eight out of ten people there are either only members of the church kind of part of the year or they're not really members of the church at all. Mm -hmm. Our church, but they are LCMS. Yeah. Um, well, if they're LCMS, I still think it would be appropriate for that first time that I show up in that congregation, I'll go talk to the pastor and say, yeah, I'm a snowbird and I'm here for the winter and I'll be, I'll be attending your church. I'd like to take communion. And he'll say, fine. Or even just make a phone call. I mean, it's not that hard. And to me, that's the appropriate thing to do. And I know there are congregations like that. And that's fine. That's not a problem. There are other exceptions that make it, that can do get tougher. See, ultimately, also we do believe in pastoral discretion. Is it possible for a pastor to sometimes commune somebody who is not LCMS? Yes. But those are what we would say are discretionary, rather emergency situations. And Aunt Mabel, who's visiting from out of town, I don't think qualifies. Did you actually turn somebody away yeah. who came to the communion rail? Yeah, I might. I've never seen that happen. I know, but I might. What I, w I have, I have had the conversations with people out in the narthex. You know, we're visiting, we'd like to take communion, what was your situation? And while we're members of such and such a church and it's not LCMS, I'd say, we need to talk more. And I know this, you would like to take communion, I'd like you to have it, and ultimately I hope we'd like to do that, but we need to talk a little more before this happens. And I'll, I'll put them off. Or I'll just tell somebody, no, you really don't belong at this altar. And, and see, people say, well, I'm just there in, in name only. Well, then why are you there? I mean, you know, there's you just got to deal with these kinds of things. So there are places for pastoral discretion. But like I said, these are rather rare. And just because they happen to be visiting, I don't think rises to the level of pastoral discretion. That's just a cop-out to be lazy. Pastoral discretion is where you've got somebody who... One, the one time I did it in my ministry was where I had a gal in my congregation with dying of leukemia. Her dad was a member of my congregation. Her mother was Roman Catholic because she was, I don't know, Panamanian born or something. So Roman Catholic. And I was in their home, and the daughter was on her final days, and I was giving the sacrament to the daughter and the father, and the mom was standing right there. No one else is around. And I said, would you like to receive the sacrament too with your family? And she said, I would love to. So I communed her. And I thought it was the appropriate thing to do at that time. Now, someone else, you can disagree with me and say, ah, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have done it. Well, that, okay, but see, that was my pastoral discretion. And I thought that situation warranted it the one time I did it. Okay. Questions? Well, it's not a question, a comment. Uh, my relatives come visit a lot. They go to church with us. They're all uh -huh. Baptist. I tell them ahead of time. Okay. I, I, I quiz them. What do you believe? What do you not believe? Yeah. Everything else. And then yeah. I said, sorry, you will not take communion. <laughs> and my sister, I was, what? Sorry, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, they still come to visit us. So. That's good. Well, that's good. Well, that's, that's, that's great. And so you've given a, a pretty clear message. There is a difference here. And you're not being nasty about it. You don't have to be judgmental. It's just there's, there are differences. And you see, it really doesn't do any good either to say, do you believe in the real presence? What does that mean? And, yeah, I believe in the real presence. You see, it's bigger than that even. Just because I'm baptized, I recognize the real presence, does not mean I'm, a, I'm worthy of communicant. I might be a worthy communicant at my home congregation, but am I going to be communing here, or you have a different confession than I do? No, because we are celebrating our confession here. That's how we do it. Next up, Tom. Well, you know, jumping off uh, what, what Aaron was saying, uh, you, know, you talk about some churches, they have these communion statements, and some of them are just mm -hmm. like very short. Oh, know? yeah. Some of them are you vague know? as gall get out. They yeah. mean nothing. But, but I've also seen where some congregations go into this, like, dissertation that they put mm -hmm. in but they put in a bulletin. It basically says, you know, if you if you believe this, 
and yeah. doing your own cake. Yeah, see, I don't even like that because I think that's missing the point. I think the point is we are we are celebrating a, a communion together. We are this unity in Christ in this place centered around our Lord and around our confession of his truth. That's what we're doing here. And it's it's not just a matter of check off the boxes, agreed, 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 good, I get to go up there. It's more than that. And I know what they're intending. They're trying to do the right thing. But see, it's not a matter of just checklists. It's, it's kind of like, well, what do I got to do? We got to do this and this. Well, anything else? No, I got that's enough. That, you're missing the point. Yeah, that's that's not the point. Right, Aaron? To the, the table, you know, to take communion that part, part of the communion. Yeah. The pastor just give them some kind of general blessing like you would a child or yeah. anything else yeah. that comes up. So. Yeah, yeah, you might do that if you're not sure. So you're not excluding them, you're offering them a blessing. I've seen congregations that are very articulate in saying that, and I know adults who go up on a regular basis, like, you know, spouses, uh, you know, who are married but they're not part of that congregation, will go up for the blessing on a regular basis. They know they're not going to get the sacrament, and they understand, but they still want the blessing. So they feel part of that, and that's, I'm okay with that. Not a problem. Deal with this then at a church that might have three thousand. That gets really tough, which is an argument for why we shouldn't have big churches. <laughs> There's, I, I, I actually, I'm becoming a stronger believer in that all the time. Church can get too big, and then you need to make it smaller. I know, and all the big church pastors fight with me and argue with me like that. Like they take great offense at that, but I, I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to that idea. I think there comes a point where churches gets too big, and the right thing to do is become a daughter church and split it off. But that's another topic. Yeah, I feel like I want to real fun to that thought. So the self-examination questions at the beginning of the hymnal, or three hundred questions for examination on page three thirteen for mm-hmm. the community. Then, yeah. Okay, so they're not for a pastor to say. Well, if you want to take communion, read these. No, they're not a checklist to see if you're if you're I in. Heard that. Yeah, that. yeah, they're not a checklist to see if you're in. They are for your benefit, for your own personal preparation, so that you are a receiving the sacrament to your benefit. You know, the idea of a worthy communicant, but more than worthy, it's one who is receiving it to the full benefit. That's why Luther drew up those questions, the twenty questions. Okay. Another one. Uh, to answer John's questions, what I've seen done in a lot of organizations <coughs> in the military, I've been in a lot of different. If it's a large congregation, the pastor will teach the elders what they need to ask, what they need to talk with the people yeah, about. Yeah, so there's a many who are be in there, either talk to the pastor or the elders. And the elders are easily identified. They've got a big name on sign on them or something. Says on the <laughs> well, they're stationed around the narthex in a certain place, right. whatever. And yeah. the people will go and talk with them. Yeah. Then they will go and talk to the pastor and say, these people, and point them out. So that when they do go to the rail, pastor doesn't say, who are you? Yeah, you can do this. And the surprising thing is, if you're a pastor of a large congregation, you do start to, you know who people are. You do. I mean, if you're there, I mean, not right away. It takes time. But eventually, it's amazing how well you get to know your people. And who is, and when you see a new face, you know it's a new face. It, it happens. You can, you can do it better than you think you might. Okay, Chris? I was going to say, my dad's pastoring in South Texas, uh-huh. and he, he he runs all over the place with this thing. He, he's got the paragraph of the opening of the bulletin, uh-huh. um, just saying, if you, if you don't, this is what we believe, this is what we're doing, if you don't agree with this, or you don't know about it, or you're just not familiar with it, just talk to, an, or go to an usher, and he'll point you to an elder, and this yeah. and that. And he's done the training of the elders, yeah. as you were saying, and then before communion, he turns around, and like... I've been to service where services where you just run straight into communion, but he he stops, turns around, and pauses, and says, "This is we're about to 
do this if you're not a member. If you don't know what's going on, please talk to someone before you come up. That's great. And then I think that's appropriate. And then there's the blessing. Yeah. See, the pastor will have a sense of who's there, you know, and stuff. And see, this is this is the most nerve wracking at Christmas and Easter. I mean, the very times when you really want to have an excellent service, but you have faces like crazy. And so I think it's appropriate that those services, especially, to make some sort of announcement and make it real clear. But see, that's the very time that pastors don't want to because they don't want to ruin the mood or something. But I mean, you've got to be you got to be faithful. I mean, there are creative ways to do it without being nasty. It's what I think. I think it's most appropriate when I, when I've seen it and yeah. experienced. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It it it, can, it works. It works. I agree with that. It's good. All right. Um, how often should communion be celebrated? Yeah, often. Luther made the comment he couldn't imagine anybody receiving the sacrament less than four times a year and still being a Christian. And so somebody read that and said, oh, Luther wants us to take it four times a year. And I can remember a good German Lutheran couple in my congregation in Michigan when I was growing up, and my dad is a pastor there. And, um, oh, Gustav and Lydia, they would take communion. <laughs> <laughs> they would take communion four times a year. They were in church every single Sunday, every single Wednesday, and they never missed four times a year. It didn't matter how many times it was offered, four times a year, because that was what they had been taught was the appropriate thing. And so those old things die hard, but the practice now, we're recognizing frequency is a good thing, and the increase of it is a good thing, and every Sunday is a great idea. Celebrate the sacrament often. You've got so much going on, why would you withhold it? So frequency is a good thing. Now, about common cup and individual cups, since I've brought it up once or twice. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, those shot glasses. Did I say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> must have been the other guy. Um, <laughs> Um, common cup is so much superior to individual cups, it's not even hardly worth talking about. <laughs> it just is. I mean, the common cup, you have the unity that's there, it's just the sacredness of it, you have the sense of the, the awe. This is a, a wonderful thing. The little plastic throwaway Jesus cups, just don't cut it. <laughs> well... You see, the individual cups really are are late innovation. They probably didn't really arise until I think the 50s or 60s is when they first came on the scene. And it's all over a sanitation thing. People are afraid of germs. That's what it amounts to. They're afraid of going to catch something. But how many little old ladies in the back room are touching all those little individual cups anyway, you know? And so we... Yeah, yeah, with hand lotion. So... uh, that's really what that's, <laughs> that's really what's driving it is this is this uh, this hyper sanitation oh I don't want to drink out of somebody somebody else's drink from this and that, that's it's it's uh it's, and that really started in the sixties and it's just this kind of a hyper concern for that there have been actual studies done on how many germs are on a chalice and the argument has been made and I think pretty effectively there's enough alcohol and the metals of uh, the silver and gold that are most chalices are made of actually discourage the growth of viruses and they don't live long in there. They actually kill a lot of germs. Um, bottom line it comes down to, is it a sacrament and is this God's blessing? Yeah. And might not pick up a little spit from the neighbor? Maybe I will. I think I'll live. You know? 
Well, the wiping, I've heard said, it's probably true, you're just spreading the germs a little more evenly. But it feels good, you know. It, 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 it's nice. Especially when you have the big bob of lipstick. And you, oh, I don't think so. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> give, it, give, give it a little twist, you know. Now, my practice, when, I'm, when I have the chalices, I just keep on turning it so everybody gets a new edge until I get all the way around, and then I'll wipe the whole thing off really thoroughly and do it, give it a good thorough cleaning and then keep it going forward rather than doing a little wipe off each time. But there are different ways of doing it. Bottom line is, I think the chalice just conveys the holiness of the whole thing better, I think. And that's what I prefer about it. And I think the sense of, you know, you got the Jesus in the little cup, you know, it's just the disposable, it's cheap, and it just... To me, it cheap the whole thing. Now, does it mean it's wrong? No, it's not wrong, but it's certainly not the best. And I'm always grateful for our chapel. And we don't even, it's nothing else. There's a chalice, and that's it. There's not even anything discussed. And it's always amazing to me how seminarians can come here who have never touched the chalice in their life, and they somehow survive and do all right. You know, we don't have disease spreading through our campus. And, you know. They don't do individual cups. No, they don't do individual. They do all the parts of Jesus. What's that? You'd have all the little cups with all the little Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It'd be a big problem. It'd be a big problem. Right. Yeah. Jeremy. I noticed uh, that some people have the pastor put the Wait for right on their yeah, yeah. I've never. I've never. Oh man! I always, when I, done that. when I was a kid, I've never done this. when I was when I was growing up, you never touched this, the host. This this thing of putting out your hand and, and receiving the host is a new thing that has that's come on in the last few years and has become big to pick up popularity. I still don't like it very much. Um, I remember Doctor Nagel saying, "You don't take Christ as gift to you," and so you know. And so I kind of like that. But see, and even, and if you're doing this right with good piety, and Dr. Burson will tell you this, he's our liturgist guy. If you're doing it properly, you receive Christ into your hand as on a little, on a throne, and then you raise him to your mouth. You don't pick him up. But that's just clumsy to do it. But you raise him to your mouth and receive him that way. That's the appropriate way to do it in good piety. But the best thing to do is just open your mouth and let let the pastor drop it on in there. But a lot of churches don't do that anymore. You know, my home church, you've got to do the hand thing. But sometimes I get stubborn. I just sit there and wait. <laughs> and, you know, some some pastors think it's easier on the hand. But, you know, I I taught my people and when I was the pastor. I never did have anybody doing hands. I did everybody's mouth, and I taught them how to do it. And if the people, if you practice a little bit, it's not hard to do. You get pretty good at bringing the wafers, you know. It, it helps you. You just put your finger behind a little bit, give a little push. You know, it works. It works. It's not that hard. Yes. What about like uh, the church I go to back in Houston? They do when they do communion. They have the altar, and then they have down front they have continuous communion mm-hmm. where people just walk. Is is that fairly new? Well, I've you, the church I served. We actually had a large congregation, and we had four communion rails going. And we did have individual cups available because I just some people are just so squeamish about the common cup and they just won't do it and they wouldn't take communion because they've got this notion that it's going to be bad or something. And so we did offer the individual cups. I would say to the credit of the people of that congregation, the individual cup people were probably less than twenty percent of those communities receiving the sacrament. We would actually have individual cups for a while. When people were done with that, then all four wheels would go to common cup. So the chalice was the, the preferred way. But so far as having like. You know, a, a set place down here where you have the sacraments being distributed and one up here, that's not a problem. You're just distributing the sacrament. But 
talking about is like they have the they have the rail where you go up and you kneel down, mm-hmm. but then down front they have continuous cattle cattle call kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, drive, yeah. Like yeah the drive through. Yeah. yeah, that's okay too. I mean, there's nothing that says you have to kneel. The the value of kneeling, of course, is it makes it raises the significance of it again, gives you the opportunity to show your humility before God and the reception of it. But to get it standing up and walking through a line, there's something wrong with that. It's not the preferred way, probably, but it's okay. Yes. One of the things that I struggle with when, as a child, or when I was young, we would go up and nobody would kneel until the pastor welcomed you to the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the first person, the pastor welcomes <coughs> the first person, and everybody takes their own yeah. time about it. Yeah. Well, so a lot of this just has to do with logistics. If you're serving a congregation of 100 people, and you've got 50 people who are going to be receiving the sacrament, you can you can do it, and he's not going to take two hours. But if you do that, do it that way with a large congregation, it just bogs down. I mean, here at the SEM, how do we do communion? I know you guys haven't been here maybe for the big Wednesdays yet, but we have the sacrament on a Wednesday morning over there, and you got hundreds of people who are receiving the sacrament. We can commune the whole congregation in about 15, 10, 15 minutes because we do it in a continuous way. You just come up, you kneel, you receive, and you go. And we don't bless individual tables. Just keep it going. But everybody gets to kneel. So there, there's nothing right or wrong about that. It's just a matter of you want to keep the, the um the piety to it, the sacredness to it, the reverence, and give that opportunity, and yet also try to be efficient. I mean, that's just part of it. I was at a church that was just so inefficient when I was in Indiana once doing pulpit supply, and this thing was just the opposite extreme. I mean, you'd have people, they'd all come lining up, and this communion rail had, I think, capacity of 10 at the most for the whole church. And they would all stand there, look around, take a step forward, and kneel, and you commune them. And then they'd all stand up, and they'd all walk away. Then the next bunch would all walk in. It was like, oh, man, what a rigmarole. It took forever. And it's not unnecessary, but that was just their habit. They hadn't been taught something else. Someone needs to come in and straighten them out. But a pulpit supply guy can't do it all. All right. Yes. Leftover wine. Leftover wine. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit before. It's not the blood of Jesus per se, but it is sacred because it's been set aside for a special use. And so either it should be consumed or it should be returned to the ground from whence it came. Huh? Yeah. Like after service? You know, if you had multiple services? Um, or can, I think it's best. Doing the words of institution. I think it's best. The same. I think it's best after each service. But, I mean, you know, well, it's a waste. Yeah, like you're going to kill your budget by dumping a little wine. I mean, I don't think you are. But, Theoretically, could you use that same wine at the very next service and consecrate it again? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Let's see, anything else? How old should you be when you first start taking communion? In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they give communion to infants. We would say, 1 Corinthians 11 says, a person should be able to examine himself, or a man should be able to examine himself. So, the ability to be able to check yourself Am I repentant? Do I recognize my need for Christ's forgiveness? That's part of this. So we would say there needs to be a certain age that does that. Where that age is, no one has drawn a hard line. It probably varies from kid to kid. Traditionally, we've always done the eighth grade confirmation, and then you let you take communion. And that's been a practice for a long time, which is probably a bad one. Um, First communion earlier is a much better practice, quite honestly, because we're separating communion from confirmation. What does communion have to do with confirmation anyway? Nothing. Confirmation has to do with baptism. 
if anything, because you're confirming what Christ has done for you there and making it clear. So communion is a different issue. So first communion, apart from confirmation, is a good idea. I'm big in favor of that. I think it should be earlier. But I doesn't. I, I wouldn't go on under first grade. Probably I don't know fifth, sixth grade, somewhere in there, fourth grade maybe, something like that. Just when a kid is old enough to start thinking seriously about what's going on and being able to receive what Christ is giving, they should receive it, and it's appropriate. Could you then Absolutely. Absolutely. I would have some instruction beforehand so they know what's going on, so they're prepared for this, so they also have an idea of you know the, the doctrines of the church. I would do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, had a, I had a situation once, and it's really kind of bothered me ever since. It's really on this subject. It was mm-hmm. during one of the... Uh, twice a year services and I had uh, an individual come up and had his uh, young son with him who was probably maybe three uh-huh. and uh, what I did is I went to commune him and he took uh, the bread uh-huh. and he went and took the cup and what he did is he gave the bread to his son and then he came back for bread again mm-hmm. and rather than make a scene I communed him again mm-hmm. but that's always Bothered yeah, it should. Got, the guy doesn't know what he's doing, and he should be instructed. He, he needs to be talked to. And... Yeah. Well, that's that, this. And this goes back. Well, that this actually goes back to the question too about do you just skip somebody? Usually, the practice I would have if I would see somebody's face at the altar that I didn't know who they were, I would put the best construction on and assume that they needed they belonged there, and I would commune them. But then I would track them down after the service right away, and I'd find out who they were and what was going on. And if I found out they didn't have any business there, I would tell them that. I'd say, well, I commend you today because I didn't know, but I don't want you to come into the sacrament again until we've talked more. Whatever, I would do that. So, you know, I wouldn't just make a big scene and blow somebody off not knowing, ordinarily. Okay. I participate in the Stephen Ministry Program, mm-hmm. and one of my care receivers had Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And at one point I discussed with Pastor when I went to commune him, he took the wafer and put it in his pocket. Uh-huh. Oh, thank you. I'll keep that. And, and I didn't know how to react to that. And, and I kind of got him to eat it finally, but I explained it to Pastor and he said, we, we shouldn't give him communion anymore. He That's doesn't right. understand what's going on. That's right. That's right. Excellent point. That whole idea of the First Corinthians 11, being able to examine yourself. I had a request once from somebody who wanted to um, give communion to their um, comatose spouse, you know, through, a, in, through an NG tube. And I said, no, they're not able to examine themselves, and it's not necessary. They don't need the sacrament for salvation. They don't need it for their faith. Their faith is fine, and we don't want to belittle the sacrament by, you know, giving it when the person's not aware of what's happening. Okay. Yeah. I have a story for you. Okay. How we're telling stories. All right. Um, <laughs> I have this certain relative of mine, not my father, who uh, was at the White House one day and visiting the president and decided to bless the nation. So to bless the nation, she went outside and gave communion to the ground. What do you think about that one? I think it's pretty dumb. (laughs) (laughs) We we shook our heads when we heard about this. She was all proud of herself, but we're like, what were you thinking? Yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking, yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, no, the sacrament is for individual human beings who receive the benefits of the forgiveness of sins. It's not a magic thing. Yeah, people do some pretty goofy stuff. <laughs> they do indeed. All right. Um, that finally, then, also because of this community element, that's also why we don't encourage small group communions. I remember I ran into this group of some people once who had the idea that they would have a family reunion and have communion at the family reunion. 
And I said, that's probably not a good idea. I found out about it because the guy, the father of the family who would do it says, well, you know, I do communion sometimes. Said, what? And so I found out more and they, that was just part of their practice. Not a good idea. It's also not a good idea why we don't, why we ordinarily don't have, you know, like if you have a small group ministering in the church, you don't have small groups practicing communion among your small group because it belongs to the whole community. And it's a celebration of that community, that whole community's faith. That's also why we don't have like, you know, like a wedding where the bride and groom say, we want to have communion, but we're not going to commune the whole congregation. No, no, no way. That's a, that's a big no, no. Because communion is always for everybody. It's not just for like the bride and the groom and everybody else just watches. It's for the whole community. If the whole community doesn't get it, then you don't give it. You don't do it. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Uh, I just thought of something about the creed. Uh, when you say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, um, uh, you say the communion of saints. Yes. And in fact, there are scholars who argue that that was actually a reference to Holy Communion. That, that communion is happening in all time. So yes. all the saints who have died, all the ones That's who are right. yet to come, everybody in the universe right. is there. That's right. And so one of, the, one of the very cool things about communion, the sacrament, is when you're communing, you're communing not only with the church militant all around you, the church on earth still living, that's what we call the church militant, but also with the church triumphant, those saints who have gone before. And they even have the practice in some Scandinavian churches where they have a round communion rail with the altar in the middle. And the congregation goes up and kneels around one half of the rail. The other half is always empty because that's where the past saints can come and commune with those who are still living. It's very cool. Very cool. Absolutely. The unity in Christ. Absolutely. Yep. And we say that in the communion liturgy, you know, all four days of the feast to come. We're looking forward to the eschatological banquet when we're all together. And the saints from all places and all times were all gathered together here around the altar. Ted? Eschatological. <laughs> eschatological. Yes. Yes. I think it's time for you to explain that. Tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anything else on communion? All right, good. Now we have a chapter which we've covered quite a bit of stuff already, but we just need to pick up a few odds and ends to make sure that we don't leave anything out. And we have a, a chapter titled.